Thank you all. If you would take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we're thankful that you're here. And there is a Bible and the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. We could think of nothing greater to give you than a copy of God's Word, as it's impacted us so very much. 1 John chapter 5 again. And we come back to these verses in verse 6 through 12. As we do that, I want us to take a personal inventory about where we find our joy. You see, friends, we will never connect with what John is writing about if we're not mindful of what brings our hearts joy. John has told us that he's writing again for our eternal joy and that that is found in holiness and righteousness and truth and ultimately in a personal relationship with Christ and His church in fellowship inside of the body. Now some would have us to believe that we should never find joy in horizontal things at all in any measure. Uh, They would encourage a kind of esoteric, monastic, Life lived, removed from the world. And yet, friends, I think that the Bible shares with us, reveals to us, that there are many blessings that God has given us in this life. There are horizontal joys. Our family, our work, our marriage, our friends. Those are all things that God gives to us to bring us a a earthly type, temporary joy. Uh, The problem becomes... When our temporary horizontal joys become the aim and the end of a person's life, then ultimately that lands in idolatry. We were made to find our eternal and lasting joy in a relationship with the living God alone. And it's only when we have that relationship right that we can then go on to honor and to really enjoy all of the horizontal blessings that God gives us, to have joy in those things rightly. And I think, friends, that our rejoicing over this uh, Dobbs decision uh, brings us to have to face and reckon with the fact that the issue of abortion brings to the forefront a nation that is so confused about where to find joy. Often, when you bring up this topic of abortion, people will argue, well, ultimately, don't you want young people to have career success? To have personal improvement? You don't want them to ruin their lives with a child, do you? Other times, it's just, quite frankly, selfish, physical gratification that people are after, and so they think that the use of abortion to perpetuate that horizontal joy is reasonable. Well, friends... God, again, gives us these joys, but they go bad when they they become idols because they become ends in and of themselves. If our career, our family, um, even our marriages become an end in and of itself, we become idolatrous. And that is what has happened in our nation. The problem of abortion at, at the base is not first and primarily a legal issue. That's how we deal with it downstream. But the problem of abortion is one that is deeply rooted in where we find our joy. And a generation that finds its joy in earthly things. 
and not delighting in God. We have found ourselves, listen, friends, it didn't take more than 30 minutes. Sarah and I, I, we were exercising, and I listened to Al Mohler uh, give his daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview uh, as I'm exercising. And he ended the, the, uh, the, the briefing uh, that morning saying that likely today is the day that the decision will come down. And I thought, how does he know? And then less, less than 30 minutes later, all of the news media outlets were dumping. And I'm like, whoa, that's creepy. Um, and I was rejoicing. I was so thankful. To be honest with you, I, I didn't have enough, um, if I'm very honest enough, trust that we would ever get to that day. That there would be people with the fortitude to bring us along. And of course, I believe that God is behind all of that providentially. And it didn't take 30 minutes beyond that time frame until I saw some uh, young people who are grandchildren of former church members here rejoicing or, or lamenting in the reality that rights had been stripped away from many Americans. And I saw many people who I ministered to as a youth pastor who have mindsets that somehow the Supreme Court has abrogated God-given rights to abortion. And I was confronted with the reality that though I rejoice in this decision, we are just a couple generations away from having completely lost the argument. Uh, Because there are most of those kids that I'm talking about have grown up in a world where it is so second nature for them to think, well, of course, anybody should have an abortion on demand. Now, this sermon today isn't about abortion, and I I don't want to just stick here, but I do want you to reckon with the reality that if we're really going to fight the battle for our uh, nation to be right on that issue, we must come back to the battle for joy. We must be a church that is not willing to cede our joy just to religious services that make us feel good. We must be a church that is about the joy that John is writing about. We must be a church that finds our joy in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I can tell you this, when a nation forgets the Lord and the joy that He brings, that same nation will fail to find joy in the face of a newborn child. There is no way that we win that battle merely by legal precedence. And we should rejoice that Roe is in the ash heap of history. But we have to realize that since Roe was pinned in 1973, our nation has become more accustomed to a culture of death and more accustomed, and friends, this is an issue that we deal with, more accustomed in our nation that pastors will preach a gospel that leads to joy found in the things of this life and not found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what we have devolved into. So, again, how do we change this reality? 
We have to heed God's Word. We don't come for religion as we want it. We come for the plan of redemption as God has authored it. The the plan of redemption that gives us true and abiding joy. We have to quit telling the next generation that Jesus loves them unconditionally. We have to tell them the truth. That God loves you because of two conditions. A perfect sacrifice and trust in the person of that perfect sacrifice. That is a conditional love that God has only for His people. Those that He gives the joy of knowing the One who died for them. And stop with the emotional hogwash that would tell an entire generation of young people you can demand to murder children and still claim the love of God. The only way that we find true and lasting joy, eternal joy, is when we find ourselves in Him. And with that in mind, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. The one in whom our joy is found. He writes, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, and the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is God's Word to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today thankful for Your Word. Thankful for the testimony that declares Jesus is the Christ. Would You write these truths on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. As John draws to a close here, he deals again with the certainty uh, about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have discussed the reality that there are really three constituent parts to these six verses. Verses 6-8 through are a testimony about the person and the work of Christ. And we see the water uh, last week is... Uh, is a testimony of Christ's baptism, the blood concerning the substitutionary death of Christ and His um, atonement and resurrection, and then the Spirit. Uh, And this points to the the fact that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And then verses 9-10 through and uh, speak to the reasons why we should believe this testimony. And then 11 and 12 draw our attention to the great promise for having believed this testimony. So all of these verses have to be taken together. Both uh, the the reality of the testimony that God has given and the the testimony we should rejoice in, the reason that we should believe in this testimony, and then also the 
benefit or the promise of that testimony. We have to understand them together. Now again, we've seen the testimony. And we know that the heresy behind why John is writing this letter is that the Gnostics sought to divide the person and the work of Christ. They sought to see Jesus as God sometimes and man sometimes to put a wedge between His two natures. And John knows that if this Gnostic heresy is planted in the church at all, it will rob the church of her joy. Because if you have a Christ who is God and not man, He cannot be our representative. If you have a man and not, if He is a man and not God, He cannot withstand the penalty that we rightly deserve. He has no power to deliver us. And so we must understand then how important it is to see that Jesus is truly God and truly man, that He is our only hope, our only advocate, our only substitute, and our only lasting joy. This matters. And someone will come and say, okay, so you're saying that God says His testimony about His Son comes in way of the baptism of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and then the day of Pentecost and the working of the Spirit to confirm that Jesus is the Christ. And my answer to that is no, I'm not saying that. John is saying that, and all of the apostles are saying that, and all of the Bible is saying that. And they would say, well, well why should we trust this testimony? It's a great question. Why is it that we should trust all of the books of the Bible that testify to one central truth and reality of Jesus being the only propitiator, the only sacrifice acceptable to mediate the problem between God and man. Why should we accept that testimony? John ultimately here gives us two types of evidence. John knows here that there is one thing that is certain in a world that lies in the power of the evil one. And that is that there will be continual uncertainty. God, then, in the face of a world that lies in the power of the evil one, and friends, do, do any of us really have certainty about much in this life? Uh, do any of us really? I, I mean, we all come at life, I think, in our generation with a certain flair of skepticism because we've been lied to so often. Because there are so many people who will seek to deceive for their own ends. But God is not like that. He lovingly and kindly and mercifully gives us first objective evidence to the reality that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. And so John writes here in verses 9 and 10, If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. John is saying there is this reality of first the external objective evidence that God has given. John says that the testimony we have, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, is nothing less than the testimony of God Himself at work in the world. It's not a hidden and a secret knowledge the way that the Gnostics were seeking to uh, perpetrate uh, on the church a, a type of salvation. It is a clear testimony from God Himself. It is a public declaration of evidence given. And it's enshrined in history. 
We have a Bible that is historically accurate. The things that the New Testament record actually happen. There was a day when Jesus walked into the waters and was baptized there in the Jordan. There, there was a day when Christ suffered the penalty of our sin. There was a day that Christ rose again. There was the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out among God's people so that their eyes were opened and they trusted that Jesus was who He said He was and who the Bible said He was. And these things agree. These testimonies stand the test of time. Now it's customary in our systems of human justice to take first-hand testimony from witnesses. And I, I remember when I was doing even security work, and one of the first things we were taught is that if you have witnesses, separate them so that their testimonies aren't corrupted. Get them to separate areas and have them write down what they say is true so that they can't say, well, ultimately, this is just a big conspiracy. We have that same type of reality in our world. We, 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 take, the we take as evidence the, the witness or the testimony of men. Uh, we listen to see if these things line up, if there's agreement between them. And John says here, if we receive that testimony, if we can go into a courthouse and we can listen to a bunch of depraved fallen sinners and accept their testimony as evidence to what has taken place in this world, then we must also realize that the testimony God gives and the work that He has done is greater still. We must pause and recognize that it was God testifying there on the day of the Lord's baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was God testifying on the day of Christ's resurrection after the day of His death that this is the One who holds the keys to death and, lead, and will lead His bride in triumph. And it was God who was testifying that this is the Christ. This is Jesus, our Redeemer, on the day of Pentecost, that was the message that was being received. And if you'll remember, that is the message that we find Peter preaching shortly after uh, the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, this is the sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. This is the message, this is the testimony of God and all of His messengers that Jesus is who He says He is. And so, why do we believe this testimony? We believe this testimony if for no other reason it's the testimony of Almighty God. And some will say, but I, I, want, I want signs. I, I, want, I, want, I want more. I, I want some sort of Evidence, friends, that detracts from the glory of God in not taking Him at His Word. 
The reason why any of us here today can be certain about the joy that we have in Jesus is because we have the words of God that confirm who Christ actually is. This isn't merely the testimony of men. This is not the concoction of religious zealots. One of the gifts of seeing the reality of what the Pharisees were up to in the life of Christ is that we can mark off Jesus as being some wild-eyed religious zealot because the religious zealots of Jesus' day are the ones that brought Him to the cross. They're the ones that crucified Him. It was God here giving testimony that this was His only Son. We have a threefold testimony from God Himself. That's what John is saying. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. So John says, okay, if you don't believe Me, and if you don't believe other Christians, fine. But this still leaves you as an unsaved person, as an individual who's not certain about these things, you have the problem. It's man's problem to come to God and to say, after all of his testifying about who Jesus is in baptism and in his death, burial, and resurrection, and on the day of Pentecost, and to come to the gospel and say, I won't have it. That's man's problem. There is a threefold testimony here, and to reject that testimony is to look into the face of God and call him a liar. For our generation to demand more evidence than what has already been given in the Word of God ultimately levels the problem not at the feet of the church, but the problem then remains with men. We have a problem, I think, in the way we reason as humans. We tend to think that the majority, the populist opinion, is the right view. We tend to think because the world doesn't accept this threefold testimony, we are in great danger. We are the ones with the problem. What are we going to do? They won't take this testimony. And some religious people rise up in our day and they say, I know what we'll do. We'll find the biggest guy we can and put him in the smallest pair of pants we can and we'll stick him on a stage. We'll have polished speeches. We'll have stirring, dramatic performances. We'll be known as the church that has great productions. We'll have precision apologetics. We'll have perfect academics. And then the problem certainly will be solved and these people will come to saving faith. Friends, the reality in all of that effort is this. We've bought into the idea that, and I don't want you to hear me wrongly, we have a gospel command from Almighty God to take the gospel into all of the earth. To declare it with boldness. But we can't add anything to this testimony. And we shouldn't. Because the problem is still leveled at men that reject this testimony. It's leveled at those who will reject the reality that Jesus is who He says He is on the authority of God's Word. 
God's word is what we should herald for the salvation of men. And the the reality is, if we've come to a position where we receive this testimony, where we hear, yes, Christ's baptism and his sacrificial atonement, and the day of Pentecost all bear witness to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, and my heart bears witness with that being a reality, we should rejoice because it is only grace that has set us free to believe that reality. The world is so bent on rejecting the Lordship of Christ upon the testimony of God, why is it that we constantly find the the church chasing the world with worldly things hoping for a spiritual result? Friends, it doesn't work that way. Think about the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed overshadowed them and behold... A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Friend, if if, if you're here today and you refuse to believe this testimony, lovingly, kindly hear me. The problem is not with the one that has brought you the objective evidence. The problem in your rejection of this evidence is with your cold, dead heart. Repent and believe. So that is the objective evidence. The the evidence that God has given us. We need nothing more than what God has revealed. We can't say anything more than what He has already said in this objective conversation and sharing of evidence. But there is a second kind of evidence here and it's the subjective, the internal evidence. Do you know why I think so many Christians, and and we've already seen throughout John's letter, that John is writing for the assurance of the church that we would know for certain a joy of everlasting life to come and we would live in light of that and not in light of current circumstances. The reason why I think so many Christians struggle to have genuine assurance is because counterfeit uh, perversions of Christian faith have been peddled pervasively in our society. And and so people become a little bit scared because, wait a minute, I don't have these emotional feelings. I don't have the prosperity and the perfect health. And I don't have this ethereal experience to, to, to proclaim. So am I even saved? Uh, we see all of the, the, the big hype and the, the charismatic type expression of what salvation is. And yet, oddly, we don't find the apostles pointing in that direction. The reformers would be concerned about two types of evidence. First, they called it the spiritus externus, what God has testified objectively to in His Word. And the spiritus internus, that is what the Spirit has testified to me. And I think that this internus part is the most crucial point. It is what John says here in verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. His heart says yes and amen to this testimony that God has given. 
If you are here today and you hear of the baptism, the death, the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, and you hear all of that and in your mind and in your heart, it points to the fact that Jesus is who He says He is, that Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, then you have more reason to celebrate today than anyone ever on the face of the planet. You have reason for great joy. Because it is only when God reveals who Christ is in our internal spirit that we know we are certainly saved. The anvil of the great evidence of the testimony of God has worn out many a skeptical hammer. The Word of God is the record of God's testimony. It is His deposition, if we want to look at it that way. When you go to trial, when you have a legal issue that you have to work through, many times the lawyers will take the witnesses into different areas, different rooms, and they will depose them. They will ask all of these questions, and then they get to use that deposition and cross-examine you to make sure that what you are, are, are witnessing to is an actual reality. This book is God going on the record. He is proclaiming what He will do for His people and how He will do it. God spoke to each who wrote in this book. He carried them along. And what is fascinating is that they all agree. And then that is what the, the, the reformers call, uh, uh, would point to as the spiritus externus, that people outside of us were carried along by the, by the Spirit of God to write down all of what God would have them to write. And we can trust in this testimony because it ultimately comes from God. And we can be certain in an uncertain world that this is God's testimony. And so then the question is, what gives us certainty uh, is, is ultimately uh, the spiritus internus. The, the fact that when I look not only at these three pieces of evidence that John has given, but when I look at the sum scope of the Word of God, they bear in me a witness that says this passage is about my Lord. This passage, all of the Bible speaks in the direction of who Christ is. Many can read the Bible and they can speak of it in moral terms. You know, you've met Sister Bertha better than you, who will come to you and point to one obscure commandment and, and really just rail against how immoral you are. Others can look at the Bible and they can see ethical dilemmas here and work through those. Some use it as a political platform. And still others see it as nothing more than a system of, of, of great religion. But you give these words to one who has really been regenerated by the power of the Spirit of God. And do you know what we see when we look into the pages? We see Jesus Christ. Amen. We see His work being accomplished His way for His glory. And you wonder why some of us, when you try to peddle moralism, go, ugh. When you try to use this as a political platform, no thank you. Now, politics and morals and ethics and all of those things are downstream of who we know our Savior to be. Amen? But we're not trying to build a kingdom. We know that His kingdom will come and that He is establishing it. You see, this is the reality of what we find John, or Paul rather, writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he writes about the rulers of this world who just can't see that Jesus is who He is. Paul writes, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. 
Although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They can't see it. There is not an internal spirit pointing them in the direction of Christ. But here we find in verse 10 the joy that we should find knowing that whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. If we have a heart, and it can be a heart that struggles with sin, it can be a heart that is downcast, it can be a heart that is beset with all kinds of temporal problems, but if we have a heart that looks into the pages of Scripture and we see Jesus as the only mediator between God and man, we should rejoice because we have a heart that has been regenerated unto eternal life. So the question then becomes this. Do you have this testimony? Does your spirit find contentment in Christ? Do you have joy? Do you have a certain joy in Him? You see, friends, it's very dangerous. It's possible to only have an intellectual assent. To hear the the testimony about God uh, in the baptism of Christ and in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the day of Pentecost and in an academic, cerebral way say, yes, yes, very good. But to never have real certain joy in mentally assenting to that reality. But John's not writing just for for us to have a, a head knowledge. John is writing that we would be certain of the joy that we have in Christ. So the question is, how do we arrive? How do we come to a certain joy? Well, we know, first of all, that the world will be full of false platforms of joy. Men will raise up, if they don't have real joy in the person and the work of Christ, and if they're not really resting in the testimony of God's Word according to who God is, then they will, alright preacher, let's figure something out. This just isn't doing it for me. And that happens all the time in so-called Christian religion. Many will say, I am certain that I have joy. And they'll walk around with plastered on fake smiles. I've been at the bedside of many dying people who would profess to be Christians and yet in that hour they have no joy. They don't look forward to seeing Him face to face. One of my great heroes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he was dying... Um, he lost his ability to speak. He had a stroke. And he was on his deathbed. And if memory serves me correctly, he had to be picked up and carried back to his bed. And, and when he woke up for the final time and Beth and his wife was there praying for him and his daughter, and he slipped them a note. And on that note, he wrote, don't pray for me. Don't hold me back from the glory. That's what it means to have a certain joy. To face death. And when people are saying, we're praying for you to say, don't do that. Stay out of my way. I know whom I have believed and I'm on my way to see Him. Don't get in the way of that. How do we, how do we arrive at that joy? 
Oh, we must always have an external objective and then an internal testimony of the Spirit. You see, what we often do and what I see all the time in modern Christianity is this. People manufacture the internal testimony of the Spirit before ever being confronted with the external uh, testimony of the Word. Now, I, I want to be rightly understood today. I don't believe that it is the words that do the regenerating power in our life. It is the Spirit of God who brings us to salvation, who regenerates us uh, such that we believe. But friends, we must always have the Gospel proclaimed, the external testimony, before we can have certainty about the joy of our salvation. We must know God before we can trust God. Think about Psalm 34. These words will be familiar to you. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. These words, test and see, are an objective outward evidence. And then the Lord is good is a subjective internal reality. But you have to taste and see before you can know that He is good. The the external has to come before the internal. We are so given to false... um, manufacturing of internals without first really knowing the doctrine that we're called to believe that gives us joy. You've heard me labor at length about the reality that I think teaching is is of utmost importance. And when I look throughout church history and I, I see men contending vigorously for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and they're standing up and they are, I mean, going at it hot over a particular theological issue and in our day... The academic nudniks will say, well, that's just not very polite. They should all just get along. And I just go, no, fight on, brothers. Get in the the weeds and figure these things out. And yes, there are tertiary issues that we have to show kindness to one another over. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to doctrine that is ultimately the root of the joy of the saints in a lost and dying world, there's no way we should concede even an inch. We must first know, and then we believe, then we have the joy, the certainty. This is also uh, illustrated, I think, well in John chapter 7. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Talking about Jesus. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone will do, is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. The first thing that we have to know in doing the will of God is to know the external testimony of what God wants us to do. It has to be the external preceding the internal. We take God's testimony in His Word and then His Spirit bears witness that it is true. Now, again, it's not our knowing the Bible that saves us. It's the Spirit who regenerates us. But our joy grows and is manifested and is certain as we come to rest in all that God has said. And this ultimately brings us to a word that I think is so important and it is best translated. Now we're back to the KJV. KJV in verse 10 translates this way. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. Uh, what, what is being said here in the Greek 
is not merely that you gather all of the analytical external evidence and you parse through it in all of your intellectual ability, and then you say, yes, yes, I think that there's reason to believe here. That's not at all what is happening. It it, it comes more in a moment like this when all of this evidence is laid before you and, and you see that you are truly apart from Christ, lost in a dark world, and that you deserve the wrath of God. And you deserve the judgment of God. And that you literally have no other hope but Christ and His righteousness. That it is not in the power of your mind, it is not in the rigor of your morality, it is not in the impeccability of your political persuasion, it is in the person of the work of Christ only that you come to salvation. And then in that moment, you don't lightly and tepidly say, well, I will come to you, Jesus. No, rather, the words here, ice, that you are flung onto Christ. You are thrown into the Savior. You find yourself having your eyes ripped open and you see the glories that Jesus is who He says He is. And He's not merely a polite religious figure that gives you a reason to dress up on Sunday morning. He is the God-man. The one who is mediating the relationship between between God and the church. And so on Sunday morning, you're more concerned with praising Him than you are with what your neighbor is wearing. You're rejoicing in the reality that your certain future rests in Him and that though everything in this world can literally go to hell, you will stand in His presence for all of eternity. You come to a place, and I think John, if we understand his mind, friends, listen, don't read your Bible for bumper stickers. Read it to get to know these men. Because they truly had fellowship with God the Father and God the Son through the work of the Spirit. And John has this entire mindset to continually bring up the reality of the centrality of the person and the work of Christ. And and I think what what is really said in, in verse 10 in the words, on the Son of God, not in the Son of God, but on Him. You are cast in that direction is because you realize that what John has said in chapter 2, verse 2 is true. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He is the only propitiator. He is the only hope. And so we run to Him. And we do it gladly and joyfully. And we give praise to God. We endure suffering. We... We look away from the joys of this life and we rest in what is certain and coming. And that is where John ends the consequence of this belief. If we have believed, it's only because we've cast ourselves on Christ and that only comes through the work of the Spirit. And what is the consequence? The consequence is huge. Verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Not that we earned it. Not that we merited. Not that He was looking at us and thought, okay, maybe that one. No, He gave it to us as a gift through Christ. And this this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. Friends, the reality is we are either flung into Christ with all certainty bound for heaven or we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
The, the, the Bible doesn't look at each man or woman or child and take a moral uh, inventory and, and, and kind of tabulate everything out and say, well, if you're good enough, you can come to Jesus. The, the, the Bible makes it very clear either you are in Christ or you belong to Satan. You either have certainty of a future with God or you are heading this hour for the wrath of God. And not because God is heavy-handed, but because He is just and you deserve His wrath. It's not popular to say that. But again, popular opinion doesn't win the day. To be a Christian is not a moral system. It's not an ethical system or political position. It is to know life and to know for certain that that life is in only one. Christ Himself. The One on whom our fainting hope relies. And that's really what is spoken. You know how many times I am asked, well, Jay, doesn't, doesn't the Bible... Friends, I just... If you are maybe been asleep for the past decade of my ministry among you, I do not believe that merely mumbling a prayer saves you. I believe God saves you. And when God saves you, He makes you alive to who Christ is. You know, I mean, Christians... Professing Christians I sit down and talk to and they describe all of their problems and we can go on for 45 minutes to an hour and Jesus never enters the conversation. And I just go, that's a problem. But we've so built up the church in this, in, in this commercialized religion that if you will just come down here and do the thing that I've been laboring to get you to do for the past hour and I can emotionally make you have a feeling and you sign a card, then I'll tell you like the Pope that you're on your way to heaven. I'm not going to tell you you're on your way to heaven and try and manufacture joy. I'm going to let the Spirit of God do that because it lasts longer. <laughs> and at the end of the day, so many people, well, what about John 3.16? Your poor understanding of John 3.16 isn't a justification for your continuing to believe in trite, fickle religion because John 3.16 bears out the testimony that if you don't find your joy in Him, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. If you don't turn in repentant faith and trust in Christ, you're dead already. Like We have this idea about humanity that, that our neighbors in the nation, in America, we're all pretty good and we've just got to give them a little bit more to get them across the finish line when the reality is our entire nation is full of hell-bound sinners who hate God. And that's exactly what John 3.16 tells us. I had a delightful woman come to me one time after I would preached in opposition to the nominal view of this verse. And she said, what about John 3.16? And I said, what about John 3.17-18? through 18? Oh. <laughs> Hallelujah. So let's end there. Our God bears testimony in us. That we have been flung onto Christ, and that is our only hope. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He has not accepted the testimony of Almighty God. 
Might we rejoice in God alone today if we do receive that testimony? Let us pray. Father God, we come before you today humbled by the reality that wretched sinners, like a lot of us, would ever cry out to you. Father, we come today amazed at your grace. Truly. And not just as a banner statement, but we come realizing the depths of our depravity and the fact that our hearts inwardly despise You apart from Your grace. And Father, we are so thankful that when we come to these verses, we can say yes and amen to them. We know that is a gift that You alone have done. We know by the testimony of Your Spirit within us that we love Jesus and we long to see Him. Father, until that day, would you use us as willing instruments not to pay someone to proclaim your gospel, but to actually be involved in our neighborhoods and in our community and around the world heralding the good news that you save sinners. Father, would you do what only you can do? And if there's one here yet that doesn't know you, would you open their blinded eyes that they would behold wondrous things in Christ? In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, stand and we'll lift our voices together. All glory be to Christ. Should nothing 